119 verse 169 says, let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. And so please pray with me. Father, we come now before you asking that you would do just that, that you would give us understanding according to your word. You have promised that you would strengthen your people, that you would uh, revive hearts, that you would disrupt, uh, that you would comfort, and all this through your word. And so we pray that you would do that now, uh, that you would cause us to hear and to believe and to listen and respond. And this to your honor. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture text will be from Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 41. Hear the word of the Lord. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey, but then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them. And came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Uh, What I want to do this morning, if the Lord will help us, is to focus specifically in on this uh, little interaction between Mary and her son, Jesus. And uh, the reason I want to do that, it is the high point of the narrative. It's the the climax of the of the narrative, especially as Jesus responds to his mom in verse 49. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now, many of you probably in your Bibles have a little footnote there. And uh, the reason it's, it's there is because the original is a, a bit vague. The noun house uh, doesn't exist there in the, the Greek text. And uh, it uses an, a, a plural form of the article in a special little way. Um, and it literally reads something like, in the things of my father, it behooves me to be. Um, and so what we have to do is, is translators uh, have to supply the noun by focusing on the context of what's happening. And so most recent translations choose the place, the temple, the house of God. 
Um, older translation, which is what your footnote might say, um, that I must be about my father's business. And by supplying that word business, they focus not on the place of Jesus, but his activity. And uh, either way, it, it doesn't really change the meaning because the central point is not only where Jesus is, but also what he's doing there. And isn't that always the point? Where's Jesus and what's he doing? And so I want to focus on that high point, that interaction, um, if the Lord will be with us and help us. Before we get there, I want to be sure that we understand the circumstances that lead us to that little interaction. The law of God required males of mature age, and uh, in the culture they, they, they considered that to be 13, um, they were required to attend three major festivals in Jerusalem to travel there. The, the Passover or the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Pentecost or the, the Feast of the Harvest, and Tabernacles or the Feast of the Ingathering. Uh, women were not required to make this journey. However, it was considered um, a sign of great devotion if they attended. And so... Joseph and Mary go and they take Jesus with him. And Luke tells us that he's at the age of 12. Um, there's a specific reason uh, that he notes this. If age 13 is uh, the age in which a Jewish boy becomes a son of the covenant and he's considered fully accountable to the law of God. It was customary then for boys preparing to enter into this transition uh, to attend these Jerusalem feasts one or two years prior to. And they did so so that they would have a better understanding of what this new relationship to God and to the community involved. And so Joseph, Mary, and Jesus go. At the conclusion of the feast, uh, they, they leave in a large caravan of people. But Jesus, he stays behind. And we must not assume wrongdoing here by Jesus. Uh, remember, as the scripture tells us that Jesus was without sin. The staying was not some kind of disobedience to his parents. Um, maybe it was just a manifestation of his humanity. I mean, he was 12 years old after all. Um, but whatever it is, it's certainly not disobedience. Some wonder how it is that Joseph and Mary could have possibly forgotten the Son of God. How do you do that? I need to understand how this large caravan of people was traveling, and I think many of you will have compassion for them. Um, they traveled in large groups for safety reasons, obviously. Um, and women and children would, would travel in front and men and older boys would travel behind and they would make their day's journey. At the end of the day, they would reconvene as one large group. Jesus being the age of 12 really could have fit into either category. And, and so if you are a two car family and you have a number of heads to count, you can easily imagine how easy it would have been for Joseph and Mary to thought that Jesus was with the other one. Um, and so they reconvene at the end of the day, this large group, and they realize they're missing Jesus and, and they're without him for three days. Uh, they make a day's journey away, a day's journey back to Jerusalem, and then evidently spend a day searching for Jesus until they find him in the temple. Now, the scene that we have with Jesus and these teachers is not an unusual one. 
Uh, it was customary practice in Judaism for students to gather around a teacher or a set of teachers and to ask questions and then listen to the dialogue. It was their way of learning. And oftentimes these teachers would ask questions of the students and expect a response as well. Um, this was their educational practice. And, and, and so when we read this, we don't need to exaggerate it as if this is some kind of exceptional situation in and of itself. Jesus is, in fact, being an ordinary Jewish boy. However, there is something extraordinary. Um, and the extraordinary aspect is the questions that Jesus asked and the answers that he gave. It indeed was his wisdom that caused people to wonder and to be amazed at him. And so remarkable even that his parents, who knew him so well, were astonished uh, when they see Jesus interacting with these teachers. And so we have um, at least 11 days, probably more with the the travel to Jerusalem, uh, probably 13 or more days worth of activity that's summarized for us in, in seven little verses. And then the story, it slows down. It it zooms in on this brief but important interaction between Mary and Jesus. It is the high point. The second half of verse 48. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, her question carries with it a sense of rebuke. Uh, she's upset. And, and, and she asks Jesus, why is it that you treated us in this wrongful way? Why would you do something to cause us such hardship and distress? And th- this word translated great distress, it's an intense word. And in English, the word great has been added because it's trying to convey the intensity of this feeling. It means to cause an intense pain or sorrow. It's a deep grief of the soul. It's an anguish, a, a torment even. And we can imagine how these parents felt as they desperately seek for their lost child, wondering where he is, what's happened to him, what he could be doing, and if he's safe or If he's been hurt, probably even if they'd ever see him again. It's a a deep distress. And and I think to some degree, I may not have lost a child um, in this way and had to search for them, but I, I think we can empathize. And we all know something of this kind of distress, don't we? We've experienced this kind of, this deep, visceral distress that we can't really put into words, but we know it because, because we've lived through it. Uh, we know what it feels for our hearts to, to, to ache. We know the experience of restlessness and for our stomachs to turn and our minds to race and, and our emotions to sort of just, just dance all over the, all over the place. And we know in the midst of that what it's like to ask the same question that Mary said, God, why have you treated me so? Why? 
And we know what it's like in the midst of these moments to desperately desire comfort, to desperately desire relief, to, to have something that just that gives us peace and rest. And we know what it's like to look for some kind of consolation, don't we? That's what we want. We, we want consolation. We want comfort. We want relief. And so we look, we look for it. Now, my, there's no connect. So my fifth and sixth grade students uh, that are in here today, what does consolation mean? Well, consolation is the comforts that we receive when we go through difficult things. That's why there's this thing called a consolation prize. You just lost and that really stinks. But look, a purple ribbon that makes everything better, right? It's a consolation prize. It's something that, that that's, to makes you feel a little bit better. And that's what we want, isn't it? We want to feel better. And so we go looking after things to make us feel better. That's what I mean when I say we look for consolation. And it's not just for you young folks. It's for the old and the young alike. We all look for this feeling of relief. And of course, it looks a little different for each of us. Some of us uh, in the midst of this distress, we, we work more. To try to forget about it. Others of us, we put off our responsibilities. For some of us, we we hide and we isolate ourselves. And for others of us, we add to our social calendars. Uh, For some of us, we escape to imagined worlds and situations and dreams. And others of us, we rehearse over and over And over and over again, the reality of our current situation. Some of us, we solve problems and we create a new way. And others of us, we give up and despair and self-sabotage. And if you're anything like me, the only amazing thing that you happen to do in any given day is to find a way to do all of these things at the same time. We all do it. We all have our methods. Not one of us is exempt. It's, it's the plight of the human heart. We construct uh, replacements uh, for God and only what he can do. Because uh, at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're looking for something to console us. But these things never really do console, do they? I mean, they may give some temporary relief and, and some kind of comfort, but, but that relief is fleeting. And we're still left realizing that we're living with the same tension that we had before. The grace of God, of course, is not fleeting. God knows our wandering hearts, and yet he remains present working in us teaching us that Jesus is, in fact, our only consolation. Only Jesus consoles. And so if that's true, then what must we do but turn to the words of Jesus himself? Verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's 
house or I must be about my father's business or I must in the things of my father, it behooves me to be. Jesus uh, seems somewhat surprised uh, that they are so distressed and that he did not know where to find him. And, and that, to me, makes sense because you're um, thinking about Mary and Joseph and, and their experience with Jesus in these 12 years. They should have understood something important about Jesus. I mean, there was the time that Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel. An amazing and memorable thing in and of itself. And, and, and she's told about how the Holy Spirit's going to form this baby within her and, and how this baby is going to be called the Holy Son of God and that he would reign as king over the house of Jacob forever. And of course, there was a time that, that well, Mary was pregnant, that she visited her relative, Elizabeth. And, and, and Elizabeth tells her, she says, you are the mother of my Lord. And Mary responds with this song that seems to indicate that she really got it. There was the announcement that Joseph received in a dream about who this Jesus was and would be. There were the shepherds that show up on on the very night that Jesus is born. They show up and surely tell them about the multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's this experience in the temple with Simeon and Anna at Jesus' purification and the remarkable words and, and, and that, they, that they tell them. There's the, the wise men that show up from the east and, and to worship and to offer these gifts fitting for a king. There's this, this deliverance in the hands of Herod. And, and surely, in 12 years of being Jesus' mom and dad, there were many other moments along the way that caused them to stop and to ponder and to, to treasure up all these things in their hearts. And so this question, why are you in such distress? You should have known. Have you forgotten who I am and why I'm here? Because I must be in my father's house. I must be about my father's business. I must do the will of my heavenly father. I must. Even at the age of 12, Jesus is compelled to his life's vocation. He says that he must be about the things of his father. Theologians call this the divine inevitability. That's. His entire life is controlled by the divine must. Jesus must be about the things of his father. He must do his father's will. And that's why, for our assurance of forgiveness, I read these words of Jesus from John chapter 6. Because Jesus tells us the will of his heavenly father. Beginning in verse 39, Jesus says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The will of the Father 
is this. That his people would know their true and lasting consolation in his glorious presence. The will of the Father is that his people, sinners like you and like me, would know true, lasting consolation as we are raised up to live in his glorious presence. It's always been about the presence of God. In the beginning, God created man to live in his blessed presence. His glorious presence was to be our life and our joy and that to his glory. And the first man, Adam, he rebelled from that gift. He saw after life and joy apart from God. And as people united to the first man and united Adam, in Adam sinned, we sinned with him. And thus, we have fallen into this state of sin and misery. And of course, Adam, he's banished from the garden. He's driven away from the presence of God. And when that happens, it leaves man with the single most important question. Can we ever get back? Can what was lost be restored again? Can, can, can we regain life lived in the glorious presence of God? And, and we begin to make our way through the Old Testament and, and we get our hopes up with each new leader and every new era only to be let down over and over again as every prophet or priest or king falls short of being able to, to take us back into the presence of God. And it's only then that we begin to discover the answer to that question. The answer is that, that there is a way, but only God can make it. See, only only God can make the way back into his presence. And that way is, of course, Jesus. Jesus comes as the new Adam, the obedient son, to live the righteous life that we're supposed to live, but Jesus comes as the true Israelite through whom the nations of the world will be blessed. Jesus comes as the prophet greater than Moses to lead us, the people of God, back into his presence. Jesus comes as the divine warrior king to conquer the enemies of God and to establish his righteous rule. Jesus comes as the high priest and the the spotless lamb of God to take the wrath our sin deserves and to leave us at peace with God. Jesus comes as our elder brother that you and I might be called children of the living God. You see, Jesus comes to restore life and joy lived in God's presence. 
And so as we live and breathe and move and, and journey through this life, we mustn't forget, we must rehearse over and over again this good news, this gospel truth that Jesus, he is our only consolation. He is our only consolation. And as we wait for the reality of us being raised up to live in the immediate presence of God, what must we do now? We seek Jesus. We look to him as our consolation. And so I want to ask the question, what does, in the midst of our great distress, those things that unrest our souls, what does seeking Jesus look like? And I want to paint two pictures for you that are going to seem a little bit like opposites, but, uh, but I think in the end we'll see that they settle into the same place. The first one is silence, and the second is lament. Silence and lament. First, silence. Well, Mary's first reaction in her distress to Jesus was that of rebuke and an expression of her distress. Following Jesus' response to her, the text tells us that she treasured up all these things in her heart. Silence. Now, when I use the word silence, what I mean is a quiet submission of the heart. This is not an external like attempt at trying to convince others or maybe even trying to convince ourselves that all is well. This is not the soft spoken mere words of praise the Lord. Uh, this is this is not just our flesh in a good mood. This is not like your teenager sneakers, or your husband's dress shoes. Clean and smooth on the outside and putrid and ghastly on the inside. This is both an external and an internal quiet rest in the care of the Lord. But Mary's response reflects the words of Psalm 62 that says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. For God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Now you might be asking, how was she able to do this? How? Well, remember that she was a woman who traveled to Jerusalem for the feast. She knew her heavenly father. She knew his care for her. She knew his goodness. And God's goodness to her, it freed her to trust him. And so she did. She trusted him even when she did not fully understand. 
You might be thinking about your own life and say, yeah, Ryan, but, but I'm not there. How? How do I get there? What do I do? You wait. You wait. God is at work in you. So you wait. You think, what kind of application is that? The Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13 says this. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this verse 12, this says, I've learned the secret. It's one word. It means to be instructed, but it means to be instructed in relationship to mystery. If we were to paraphrase Paul's words here, he would say, I have been initiated into the mysteries of contentment. This contentment, this waiting, it is a mysterious thing. And it's also a passive thing. Paul, in in these words, speaks in the passive voice. And, And the reason he does so is because it is God at work in us. And it must be that way because this waiting in silence, this quiet submission of the heart, this contentment amidst our distress is a mysterious thing. How is it that we can know it? How can we do it? Well, God does it. And that is his grace to us. And it's this grace that enables Paul to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, in the end, this internal submission and trust of God is his grace bestowed upon us. It is the Holy Spirit working in us to teach us the mystery of contentment and his goodness to us. His work in us frees us. To this one beautiful thing. To trust him. And so we do. Even when we do not understand our souls. We wait in silence. The second way that we seek Jesus amidst our distress is lament. Now, this may seem contradictory to silence, um, but it's not. You see, in both silence and lament, it's not simply about what we do externally. um, Because we can be silent with our tongues and yet grow embittered and confused and even distrusting uh, toward God. 
And we can lament and express our grievances and our disappointments and, and our pains to the Lord and, and to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And yet do so from a humble and faithful submission of heart and mind. The key to both of these expressions is the internal frame of the soul. The Lord Jesus himself is our example of lament. Uh, You may recall uh, Jesus, when he was on the cross, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if there was ever a moment in the course of human history, a moment of, of deep anguish, it was there. The... The distress and the sorrow and the suffering, the anguish that we feel, that we experience, Jesus knows. And he cries these words, and he didn't just come up with them. They're actually the beginning of Psalm 22. I want you to to, to flip your Bibles, to turn to Psalm 22, because what I want to do is read this psalm together. The reason I want to read it together, it was common for Jewish teachers to reference or quote the beginning of a passage in order to sort of import uh, the, the broader meaning of the entire passage. And as we read Psalm 22, I think it's clear that this is what Jesus did. And we see his experience at the cross. But we also see where he sought his consolation in his greatest moment of distress. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Enthroned on the praises of Israel and you, our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued in you. They trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust at your mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. 
But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in all of him. All of you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he... Has done it. That he has done it. What is this? It's lament. It is Jesus drawing near to his father in that dark hour. It is him looking to to his father and to his word for strength and comfort, indeed, as his consolation. And the psalm is not shy about expressing grief. Christ gives us the language of lament. As a real and even a right response to suffering. You see, biblical lament is not unbelief. It is not despair. Rather, it is quite the opposite. Lament is an urgent expression of faith. Because it is a refusal at the deepest core of who we are. It is a refusal to let God go. Lament is built on the profound belief that God must be with me. And that he must care for me because of his steadfast love for me. And so in distress, we turn to God in our lament and and we acknowledge our distress, we acknowledge the reality of our situation and we say that, Jesus, you must be with me. Jesus, you must care for me. And so I must wait on you. Where else could I possibly go? You are my only consolation. And notice how the psalmist turns from lament throughout the psalm to trust in God. He says, I find no rest. And then verse three, yet you are holy enthroned on the praises of Israel. I cry day and night and still you are God and worthy of my trust and indeed my praise. 
He says, I am a worm and not a man. I am mocked. And then verse 9, yet you are he who took me from the womb. I have no comforter now. And yet you have and you continue to be care for me and to be with me even in my greatest vulnerabilities. He says, a company of, of evildoers encircles me. And then verse 19, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. I'm at death's door, but you, you rescue me. Jesus has his consolation in his heavenly father, even as his father's wrath is laid upon him. That's remarkable. I must admit, I don't understand that. But I know I can trust it. I know I can trust it. Silence and lament. To conclude, I want to ask two questions. The first question I want you to answer for yourself. The second question I'm going to answer for you. First question, what is that thing that stirs unrest? That distresses your soul? Got it? Second question, what is the beauty in that thing? The beauty in these things in our lives that cause us anguish and distress is that in the midst of them, we come to understand what we most need and what is most important is that we have Jesus. That Jesus has us. And that he will raise us up to dwell with him. And there we will know life and joy in his glorious presence. Jesus, him in the midst of your answer to question number one, he is what is beautiful. He is your consolation. Please pray with me. Father, we draw near to you. You know us. You number the hairs on our head. You have cared for us in our greatest moments of vulnerability. 
And we know that we can indeed trust you. We don't always understand, and, and yet we draw near to you because you are good, and your goodness to us frees us to this trust. And so I pray for, for us in this congregation that you would indeed be at work in us, teaching us what it means to draw near to you in our time of need, teaching us what it means to remind one another of the glorious hope that we have in Christ and that you would teach us to find our comfort and consolation in you and in you alone. God, there are many here today who carry great burdens in here, and so I pray that you would um, remind them that you are indeed with them, that you are for them. Uh, There are some that have walked in here today rejoicing, and I pray that you would uh, allow them to take great joy and delight in, in what you're doing in the circumstances you've given to them. Um, God, we pray specifically for the Kovar family today as they continue to grieve the loss of Julie's father. Be sweet to them in your grace during this time. We pray for uh, Brad Kaler ask that you would continue to be merciful to him, that you would give wisdom to medical professionals, healing both in body and in soul. We pray that you would strengthen Beth as she cares for him. Many others, Father, of of needs that we don't know about, that are unspoken, uh, God, would you meet them? And Father, as we go out from here, may we carry the hope of the gospel with us, that you came, that you condescended, that you uh, might raise us up with you. May we know that hope and that be our strength and our guide and, and our joy. And this we pray in Jesus' holy name.